Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I am Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche, and in this episode, we'll be chatting with Andrew Weller. Andrew is the Dean of Enrollment and Strategic Marketing at St. Stephen's and St. Agnes School, a private Episcopal day school serving students in grades JK through 12 in Alexandria, Virginia. Andrew was previously Director of Admissions for Avenues, the World School, Executive Director of Advancement at Ridley College, and Director of Admissions at Chestnut Hill Academy. He was a board member of the East Bay School for Boys, served on the inaugural Admissions Leadership Council, served four years on the planning committee of the TABS NAAS Global Symposium, and now serves as an advisor to the Admissions Directors Institute of the Enrollment Management Association. He has a bachelor's degree from Alfred University, a master's degree from Marymount University, and a doctor of education from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you so much, Angela. I'm a little humbled by that introduction, but I appreciate it. (laughs) I feel as old as I look suddenly. No, no. Well, all that, I think that just means that you're a rock star and it it justifies your role as our, our guest for this interview. So thank you so much for taking the time. Today, we're going to talk about yield, and I'm really looking forward to getting into that. But before we do, as I shared with you during our planning, we have two questions that we ask every guest on the EI podcast. So I'll start with, what is something you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn? You know, with that long introduction comes a long list of examples of things I tried (laughs) that didn't work. But given that we're talking about yield today, I wanted to focus on a yield thing that didn't work for me. So a number of years ago, gosh, I think about 16 years or so, I was at Chestnut Hill Academy, as you mentioned, in Philadelphia, and we were planning for our yield. And in Philadelphia, at least at that time, maybe it's since changed, schools did not do revisit days. Students did not have the opportunity to come back and look at the school one more time before making a decision. But boarding schools, I know from boarding school world that you everyone does the revisit day, right? You come back and you get one more shot at this. So I decided we were going to do a revisit day. And I was very proud of myself that I was bringing this you know, new initiative into, into my school. And I thought it would give us a great competitive advantage over our other schools because other schools in Philadelphia didn't do it. So we created this really nice invitation and we rallied the faculty around the idea and we set up student hosts and nobody, not one single person signed up to come back for our revisit day. Oh no. And in hindsight, you know, went back and you know talked to families because when that happened, I thought, oh, yield is doomed. I mean, I went to the CFO, I went to the head of school, you know, the enrollment, the bottom's falling out. I don't know what's happened. Nobody wants to come back and see us again. I need to change all my numbers I told you we were going to have for enrollment. And then following up with families, I came to find out their sons, I was at a boys' school, their sons had missed so much school in the fall doing their initial visits and interviews. They didn't want them to miss any more school. And they already knew that they wanted to come to Chestnut Hill Academy. And our yield was great and ended up not being a problem at all. But I created this opportunity that just didn't fit in the culture of the market. And so where I thought I was being innovated, I actually was making a wrong choice for my school. I was being too innovative for that area and our yield ended up being fine. But it it helped me think about, I need to frame that within the culture and context of the independent schools and the families we work with in that particular market. 
That's so interesting. So there's a there's a couple of lessons there. So sometimes being a trailblazer is is not <laughs> the best thing. <laughs> so that's a good thing to know. I think we're always trying to think about ways that we can do things that are new and innovative. And sometimes that's not the move. And it's a good reminder of the importance of really knowing the market that you're working in and the segment that you're working in, because not all segments and markets are created equal. You know, and so sometimes if you move to a new area or a new type of school, there might be some reasons why your peer schools are not doing certain things. That's good advice all around. So our next question, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work, especially as someone who has so much experience? How, how are you constantly bringing in the new stuff? Oh, interesting. Before we went live, you and I were talking about higher education, and that is certainly one of the places I look. I keep an eye on what's going on enrollment in higher education because for the most part, it will happen there before it will happen in our world. I'm sure that some college or university had the first Facebook page before any independent school did. You know, The first colleges and universities were probably using Skype to do interviews with their international applicants before we ever thought of it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always looking to see what's going on in higher education. It isn't always transferable. Sometimes it's a matter of resources in higher education that we don't have. Sometimes it's about the fact that we are, in our younger grades at least, targeting parents and they're targeting students and they're targeting mm -hmm. students of a different age than we have. But I think it's always worth taking a look at. One of the other things I like to do is I like to bring together a diversity of people to think about a problem. So a few years ago, I was at a school and we were struggling a little bit with ninth grade yield. And it wasn't where we wanted to be. We had the applications we needed. They were quality kids. We were able to offer lots of offers of admission, but we weren't getting the yield that we wanted. And so what I did is I thought about, okay, what are some schools that look like ours in terms of our profile, but are not our competitors? So who are our comparative peers, but not our competitive peers? And I rang up a couple of colleagues at other schools and I asked them if they would come spend a day with us and my team and we would you know, put them up and take them out for a nice dinner afterwards and pay their travel. And so I brought in some people from some different markets who had similar profile schools to get their perspective and to learn about what was going on in their market. We also brought in some folks from the academic side as so much of the work we do in admissions is very parallel to the work that we do in advancement. I asked some of our advancement folks to come in right? They need to yield donors. We need to yield students. You know, many yeah. of the strategies and the messaging are the same. So I like to put together think tanks of people who are outside of just the world of admission or even just outside the world of our office so that we can get some fresh new perspectives. I think that's amazing. I do want to to stick with that for, for a couple of reasons. One, I do think that more collaboration between admissions and academic leadership can be a missed opportunity. It doesn't always happen, and it definitely should. I also really want to shove people a little bit on the idea of looking at comparative schools and not competing schools, because I, I think we have this tendency across leadership, you know, to be looking at the schools down the street. What are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? <laughs> and and that's that's not, even though it's really hard to retrain your brain to think about things a little bit differently, it's such a powerful flip of the script to look at schools that are similar in other markets that may be facing similar challenges 
but have different perspectives on how you can solve for those. I just, I love that. Thank you. I think, you know, as I've always talked to younger people on my staff who are coming into the profession and thinking about the profession as a career, while there are certainly wonderful professional resources like Niche, like EMA, like TADS, et cetera, sometimes the best professional development we can get is from our peers and colleagues at other schools. And so I invite people who work for me to think about, okay, we have X amount of dollars that we're setting aside for your professional development this year. And let's say, for example, we are going to ask you to be in charge of the tour guide program. And you heard a podcast or you read a blog about a school on the other side of the country that has this amazing tour guide program. Well, let's take those professional development dollars and fly you out to that school to meet with their student tour guides and to meet with the person who runs their tour guide program and to think about that as professional development. So looking among our peers outside the formal structure of our profession, I think there's lots of professional development and learning and collaborative opportunities among our peers. That's great. And it's also such an interesting spin on professional development, which, you know, from a retention standpoint and a mentoring standpoint, you know, is is a really interesting, what a great experience to be able to fly across the country and visit another school. I think that's something that, you know, consultants and people working outside of a day-to-day school environment get the opportunity to do, but to be able to do that as someone who is actually working in a school environment day to day is a really cool opportunity. And no, and nobody ever says no. I was listening to a podcast recently called The Pink Cast by Daniel Pink. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a wonderful one. And I don't know, they come up, what do they come out every week or every two weeks? Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the difference, kind of transitioning from the idea of asking for feedback to asking for advice. The idea that feedback is this corrective thing. It's this this work thing that you're doing. Advice is something you go to a friend for. And who doesn't love to give advice, right? Who doesn't want to help out? Versus feedback, people are anxious about making you feel bad or telling you 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 could do a better job than you did. So when I think about working with comparative schools, I think about going out to them and asking for their advice. And his pink cast, which I think rings true, is everyone lives to give advice. Nobody really likes to give feedback. <laughs> so and I listened to that pink cast and the next day I had a group of parents I need to get some feedback from. And I put in the subject line, seeking advice. And I sent it to 10 parents and all 10 sets of parents got back to me within the same day. Maybe a coincidence, but I thought, you know, an email asking for advice versus an email asking for feedback. So That's going great. to other peers and other schools and asking for advice, who wouldn't say yes and open their doors and welcome you to their campus? That's true. That that framing is so helpful. So we'll we'll make sure that we emphasize that in the show notes because I think that's a really fabulous point. I'll tr- I'll try to find the pink cast. I'll send I'll send it to you. You can link it in. Perfect. Perfect. So now we're going to get into the meat of our conversation and talk about yield. So let's start with the basics. What are two or three key points that you think an admission office should be considering when they're thinking about yield? I would say, well, the first thing to think about is yield begins at the very first conversation. So I'll use an example. I work in an Episcopal school. So a family calls up and they want to receive more information or maybe they want to schedule a tour for an appointment but while they're on the phone one of the very few questions they ask is do all students have to go to chapel we're not an episcopal family or we're not a family of any particular faith 
And immediately right there, to me, that denotes a yield hurdle, right? There is something that they are, they're worried about. So in the very first conversations, always using yield as a lens or as a filter and taking notes so that when you actually get to the, the tactical yield part of the season, you have good notes to work from. And that example actually is, it's a, I'll, leave, I'll leave it as the same example for brevity. It's a good example for the second point, which is I think often schools get, they get focused on yield in terms of what gets this family excited, right? This kid plays football. We need to get a football player family to call them. This right. kid lives in this certain neighborhood. We need to get someone from that neighborhood to call them. This kid loves math. I need a math teacher to call them. But we lose sight of what are the hurdles to that family enrolling? We might have the best math program with the best football program, but if that family is still stuck on transportation, if they're still stuck on cost of attendance, if they are still stuck on the fact that their child would have to go to chapel every week, it's going to be very difficult to yield them if we don't also address those things. So maybe it's having your director of financial assistance call. Maybe it's having your director of transportation call and talk about carpools or your busing options. Maybe it's having your chaplain call and talk about how they try to make the chapel program something that is accessible to students of all face or no face and make it a comfortable place for everybody. So we have to make sure we don't fall into the trap of just yielding on the positive things because right. some of those negative hurdles are going to hold them back no matter how positive the positive things are. And then I would say the last thing in terms of thinking about yield and, and a yield plan to me, yield works at kind of two levels. It works at 30,000 feet where you've got a strategy and a broad approach where you want to emphasize your brand points. You want to emphasize how you differentiate yourself from other schools to which students have, might have been offered admission. You're, you're working at this very, we're going to treat everyone equally in yield and send them the same invitations or the same email blast or the same blog post or whatever the case is. But then there's also an on the ground yield part, which is what I referenced a minute ago, right? We want this family. We think this particular kid and this particular family would really be a great addition to our school community. And what are we going to do for that one family, whether it's that football coach calling or the person who runs the orchestra calling a kid who's passionate about the violins or the person who runs a robotics team who wants to talk about that? What is what we call in my office kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat yield? Uh, <laughs> one family at a time, one kid at a time. And with older students, you might need to have a yield plan for that eighth grade student, but you might also need to have a yield plan for those eighth grade parents. And those are different touch points. So what is your broad yield plan that you can start working on in the summer and thinking about what are we going to do next year when it's time to do yield? But also what is that student-by-student, family-by-family, hand-to-hand combat yield plan? I love that hand-to-hand -hand combat yield. <laughs> I feel like that that warrants a place on a coffee mug or sticker or something. That's really fun. That's great. And I, I know that this is not necessarily a you know yield in the time of COVID conversation, but things have changed. And so are there some ways that you've seen schools change their approach to optimizing or maximizing yield during the past couple of years? Absolutely. I think we're I think we're in this season of where we're trying to figure out what's been the best of our COVID practice and what was the best of our pre-COVID practice. Sure. Kind of taken some of those great traditional yield things we did from pre-COVID. And you know, hopefully for most people uh, you know, around the country, they can bring some of those traditional events and opportunities back into their yield plan this year. 
But we also saw some really innovative successes uh, with our COVID plans, right? Some Zoom events where maybe you can bring in alumni from around the world who are at the smattering of different colleges and universities and bring them in on Zoom to talk to families about how well they were prepared for university, where we would have never done that before. I mean, my own school is here in the Washington, D.C. area, and we always found an alumnus or alumna at Georgetown University who we could just pay an Uber ride to come over and participate in the Yield event. And now we can bring in students who are at the University of Barcelona and St. Andrews in Scotland and McGill in Montreal. So I think what a lot of us are doing this year is trying to figure out what was the best of pre-yield or pre-COVID and what was the best of COVID practice and putting that hybrid together this year, seeing how it goes. And then next year, we're really going to have our new yield plan, right? We're going to see what works and what spaghetti sticks to the wall this year. Right. And we'll really be able to reinvent yield going forward from here. The other thing that was interesting is in the last year or so, EMA came out with their ride to independent schools. And one of the things that was really interesting that I know you asked about my comparative school of friends, one of the things that we were talking about that was a bit of a buzz is that 30% of families change what their first choice school is as they go through the process. Mm -hmm. So I see schools Usually you end the application process and then there's usually this dormant time where things are really quiet between you and the families as you're reading files and making decisions. And then all of a sudden it ramps up, right? Then we get into our formal yield time when families have to make decisions. And I see schools moving into what I would call pre-yield time, which is that time between the application deadline and when decisions are released. And we're trying it ourselves. Uh, One of the things we did during COVID is we had a Zoom meeting one night with a bunch of breakout rooms. So there's one where you could talk to the business office about payment plans and one where you could talk to the extended day folks and one where you could talk to the director of transportation. And we just managed that main room and just pushed people around into the different rooms. Everybody wanted to talk to the transportation guy. Wow. He was by far the most popular person to talk to that night. So for at my school next week, we have a webinar and a one hour webinar with nobody but the transportation guy, because we realized that's really important to families. And if we can move 30% of those families who are still not sure what their first choice is before they get to their decision to be like, I liked St. Stephen's and St. Agnes. Now I can actually picture how my child's going to get to St. Stephen's and St. Agnes. I can get even more excited about it. So kind of these pre-yield ideas, because EMA really pointed out the fact that there's a group of parents whose first choice can still be formed before admission decisions come out. Yeah. I, I, and I our, our data bears that out as well. There's a lot of room for movement in what parents are going to do over the course of the admission cycle. I mean, it's right. really at a level that I don't think any of us are really used to. And, you know, what's been really interesting is seeing there are schools who will see families show up in May and June. And this pattern that we thought, you know, might have been a sort of a flash in the pan with the last minute, you know, enrollment interests, it's still very real because there's this constant desire among parents to kind of look at at what might be going on at, at the school in the next block over and this desire to just find like what's what's the best thing for my child what's the best thing for my child and it's no longer a given that where they are is going to work or even where they thought they wanted to be is going to work so there's this really interesting movement that's happening sometimes on a more traditional cycle and sometimes 
there are people who are realizing now that they're in a situation that isn't working for them and they want to make a change for next fall. So it's interesting to think about the fact that you have some families that are really right up at the buzzer deciding what that top <laughs> choice is. And also, I think transportation is like a sleeper priority for families. I, I truly, you know, I, it's not the thing that we tend to talk about or emphasize the most, but it's really important. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, once a family, you know, because I was talking to our director of transportation the other day, so we were planning for this. I'm like, we're at that stage in the cycle where they have checked all the big boxes, right? We know what AP courses you have. We know what sports you have, right? We've looked at your college list. We've been on campus. We, now they're down to the little boxes, right? What are your payment plans? I spread this out over four months, 10 months. How's my kid going to get to school every day? Do you have extended day? How long does it go? How do I get involved as a parent? Do you have a parent organization? So the, the big boxes have all been checked. And as long as they're happy with those checks, they're still engaged with you. Yeah. And now the engagement is becoming much more micro at this point in the process. And so yeah. our hope with this event next week is that for families who are excited about our school, we can check that box of transportation and they can literally be like, I know I need to take my kid to the Whole Foods by 705. Right. Right? And I can work that into my day. I know how to fit that into my commute or I know how to accommodate my younger child's schedule who needs to get to preschool. And actually now I can visualize my kid going to St. Stephen and St. Agnes because I know the, the logistics of how it's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. Don't forget those little boxes. The little boxes matter too. Absolutely. I think one of the other things that was in the EMA report that was also an interesting point, and it wasn't revolutionary. And I remember reading it thinking, well, this is common sense, but how common is it? Because I had never thought of it. <laughs> but the idea that in the beginning of this process, you might be compared against seven, eight, 10 schools, right? Boarding schools, right? It can be even more than that. Yeah. But by the time we get to February, they're, they're kind of zeroed in on three schools, right? You know, yeah. We have our top choice and a couple backups if the top choice doesn't work. And so... Now they're reevaluating all their thinking and all their decision-making based on a pool of three instead of a pool of 10. And so yeah. it's a completely different mindset for them in terms of the things that they're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. And they're in a place where it, they've had all this time to second guess. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's something that, you know, you really have to think about too, to go back to your point about like what those barriers are. You've got to help remove those barriers and remove that friction for your families. Or realize that it can't be moved, right? That family that you know, wants to avoid chapel, then this probably isn't the school for you, right? Being in Episcopal school is part of who we are. And if you keep asking every opportunity you get about missing chapel, then this probably isn't the school for you. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, one of the things that I've shared with people many times, you know, even in the way that you brand and market your school was you have to understand both who you serve and who you don't. And there's still this resistance to being able to be okay with the families that you can't serve, but but that's okay. That's part of what makes your institution unique and it's part of what makes you right for all of the other families that you can serve. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Don't you think in the work that you do that that's in my mind, like that's the hallmark of good branding and marketing, right? That yes. it attracts the mission appropriate families and it detracts, I don't know, am I making up a word? Yeah. <laughs> the families that aren't mission appropriate, right? They're yeah. they're, you know, it 
your clarity of brand, your clarity of mission, your clarity of values and priority will draw to you the families that are appropriate for you. And they will send those families who aren't appropriate elsewhere. And and that's okay, right? I think you're right. People people get anxious about the idea of kind of driving away families, if you will. But every time we have a family decide that they're not interested in our school, they're one step closer to the school that is right for them and their kids. Yes. And that's an okay thing, right? Our clarity of mission and our clarity of values and expectations helps families better narrow down that list from 10 to 3. And if we're no longer in the list when it gets narrowed down to three, that's okay. We've helped them actually get closer to the school that's better suited for them and their child. 100%. And that's better for everyone. You don't want the family that comes to that realization halfway through, you know, the following school year after they've already enrolled. Right. right? And doesn't, doesn't this get to the point you raised in your email to me recently about Ann Snyder's article in Case? Yes. About- the cycle of families that show up in year one, and then in year two, they're not quite sure that was the right decision. And then in year three, they leave, right? And so these three-year cycles of families kind of coming in and then cycling out again, I think we can we can attack that phenomenon that Anne hypothesizes by making sure that we do have strong branding and we do have strong yield, right? So our yield should be as strong as our brand so that the families who do sign up are signing up for the long-term. And we have Absolutely. less of those families leaving in the three-year cycle that our friend Ann was talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful piece. And we'll be linking to that in the show notes as well, because it's it's something to, to really think about as we, it, it's actually a good segue into our next question about this COVID bump that to borrow from my friend Nija Meyer, who we had on the podcast earlier this fall, this influx of interest that so many schools have seen. It's changed the way that we're thinking about all of this, but we also can't take for granted, even going into now the third year, that these families are going to stay. So we'll definitely be linking to that article in the show notes. But to get back to that, you know, we talked about this bump and how it also gives schools an opportunity to think very differently and strategically about yield, how they approach it, and actually shaping what they want their school communities to look like long term. So whereas before it was much more about like, we just need to fill seats and making your numbers, we have an opportunity to really have a more thoughtful conversation around how we can actually retain families in that process that map to how we want our communities to be reflected in the future. Yeah, I, if we go back and, and look at what we were reading you know, two years ago, COVID was going to be the demise of our industry, right? Yeah. Everyone thought the K-8 to schools were going to close down and the small schools that are so incredibly tuition-driven you know, were also going to close down. And the opposite happens. It's been a boom for independent schools uh, as an industry across the country. But that does give us that opportunity, as you mentioned, for many schools, they shifted from the fill seats generate revenue to be much more strategic, thoughtful, and mission-centric in their admission and yield process. These were opportunities to maybe bring gender balance to a class that's, you know, since kindergarten, it's been, you know, 55, 45% girls over boys. And this COVID bump gives a school an opportunity to bring that to 50-50 boys and girls. It might have been an opportunity for schools to think about you know, we have all these applicants from this neighborhood where we never had applicants before. Maybe we want to create a bus route out there. 
and be able to have some more geographic diversity by bringing in students from communities where we didn't have students before. Thinking about those mission-appropriate students, thinking about those students that will stay with us through graduation, through the totality of our school's education and our school's experience. I think schools that that grab that opportunity were really smart about screening those families and making sure that they were interested in the mission of their school versus they were interested in getting out of the bad situation they were in. Mm. It was interesting. We talked to a number of families that first summer were St. Stephen's and St. Agnes and a number of families we talk on the phone say, oh yes, well, we had always planned on sending our children to a Catholic school. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're an Episcopal school. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was a really easy screener, but what it was telling us is the families hadn't done so much, hadn't done any research to even look at our website where you would prominently see that we're an Episcopal school. Yeah. And that that family was more running away from something versus embracing something. So it was a real opportunity during COVID for those schools that could increase their capacity to do so in a very mission-centric way. But something you said, Angela, makes me think we were talking earlier about, you know, the benefit of knowing your comparative schools versus your competitive schools. One of the things that I, I want to do a shout out for people's participation in their regional consortium, because mm. there's also some benefit in that. I remember talking to a family, one of the schools that would definitely fall into my competitive school category. They have an entry point of fifth grade and we don't have an entry point until sixth grade. And a family called and was asking about fifth grade. I said, we don't have any room, that class is already full, but I was able to refer them to another school who I knew entry was a fifth grade for them. And so they would have more openings in fifth grade. And so from an applicant to space ratio, they might have a better shot um, garnering an offer of admission from that school. So while I do value very much talking to my comparative colleagues, so I don't have to worry about the competitive piece, <laughs> we're gonna serve families well, knowing the schools in our immediate market area so that we can help families find those schools, I think is something that's important, particularly for admission directors or deans to be doing is, is to know their network and stay connected locally and service to families. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a great reminder of what we're all here to do to begin with, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about helping families find the community that's going to be right for them. And so there are some benefits for sure to keeping that network going. Now, something that can definitely be helpful during that period of time between when the decisions go out and families enroll is to facilitate more engagement with members of the community. And so I'd love to get into some strategies that admissions leaders can use to engage people like current parents, students, staff from outside of the admissions office to increase yield. We talked about that a little bit and how not to do that <laughs> earlier in our conversation. <laughs> but I'd love for you to share your thoughts on some ways that people can do that effectively. It's a great question because I think it's really important. You know, when I think about yield, I think, you know, any of us who've been doing this for a long time, we have had countless emails or phone calls that goes something like, hey, Angela, you are our favorite. We really enjoyed working with you. The process at your school was so easy. You were so lovely and kind. However, <laughs> we're going to enroll at this other school down the street. And every time that happens, it's a reminder to me that people don't enroll at schools because of the admissions office, right? They mm -hmm. enroll at school because of the people who will teaching their student or the people that will be coaching them or the people that will be leading them in the play or whatever the case yes. is. So I think it's so important that we think during yield time and even kind of this 
new concept that I just made up 20 minutes ago called pre-yield time. I love um, it. <laughs> thinking about our roles as matchmakers, right? We're trying to bring our families, our prospective families and the school together. And at some point as the matchmaker, you need to get out of the way. <laughs> you need to let these two people go on a date together. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna string this metaphor along, but I think it really is important to connect families with the people who are going to be part of their day to day experience and give them the opportunity to meet that division director, to meet the kindergarten teachers. We just did a webinar recently uh, with some of our kindergarten teachers because that's a big entry point for us, and I learned a wonderful lesson watching the webinar. And one of the things, the kindergarten, it was all about kind of getting ready for kindergarten. And again, we're trying to help families see their child enrolled with us. And what is this going to look like? And when the teacher said, you know, are you one of those people who, like me, is at home trying to open the Lunchables, right? Like you're trying to like peel the plastic off the top of the Lunchable container. And she's like, if you can't do it, your child can't do it. Don't send them to school with Lunchables. <laughs> But the message is all about letting kindergartners become more independent and self-reliant so they're not always feeling helpless. And so you want to give them the Ziploc bag with the little zipper on it instead of the Ziploc bag where they have to pinch it closed. Yes, yes. We got so much great feedback on that webinar, just these practical tips about coming to kindergarten. Wow. And essentially the admission office did the matchmaking. We got, we got the kindergartner teachers on one side of the webinar. We got the prospective families on the other side of the webinar and we got out of the way. So I think that's really important during yield time is to make the matches and then get out of the way and let the people who are actually going to be executing mission, delivering program, the ones that will be emailing with the families, talking to the families, get them together with the family so that they can start to build that relationship and they can start to see and feel what it will be like to have their child enrolled in our school. Because at the end of the day, they really don't care how lovely the admission director was. <laughs> <laughs> it's so they enroll, true. If they return their enrollment contract on time every year, they'll never talk to the admission director again. <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. And what I love about that particular example is that that kind of access to teachers is something that oftentimes parents don't experience until after they've enrolled. Right. And so front loading that and helping them to really start to see, okay, this is the person that's going to be teaching my child, and this is how they approach problem solving, and this is the sense of humor that they have and the personality that they have. It's radically different from going on a tour where you're kind of like rapid fire, classroom to classroom to classroom, and you're not really having those engagement opportunities, or if you're on a Zoom call, you know, where everybody kind of gets their 10 minutes, it's so powerful to open up that access to the teachers, especially because, you know, one of the things that we've seen is parents really, really care, especially right now after so many parents have experienced remote learning and all the trials and tribulations associated with that. They really are craving high quality, super engaged teachers. Your teachers are your greatest asset right now. So if you can put them to the to the forefront, that's huge. And don't wait until after people have enrolled to do it. Right, right. I mean, if you want to yield them, get them out there in front. You know, other people who are really key college counselors. Oh, yes. Students, you know, very strong students. Parents want to understand, okay, what is my kid going to take in ninth grade, 10th grade? You know, how many APs will they end up with in 12th grade? Right. <laughs> What profile does that that profile student, you know, what colleges, you know, do they end up going to, et cetera? 
so getting all those those key people, whoever they are, right? And the families are determining who are the key people. Yes. Right? This is this is during yield. It's it, we really struggle sometimes as an industry with trying to balance, or or frankly, not even thinking about trying to balance what are the things we want them to hear and know versus what are the things that they want to hear and know. Yes. So less talking, more Q and A, right? Yep. Let yep. the parents drive the conversation about the things that are important to them. But so often we're like, we love the following six things about our upper school. And so we're <laughs> going to spend an hour telling you about these six things. <laughs> and we're going to bring on six different people to tell you about these six things. And then we're going to give you 10 minutes of Q&A at the end. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. And, and so we need to, yeah, we need to strike that balance between what they want to hear and know and see versus what we think is in their best interest to hear and know and see. That's incredible advice. And I, again, I'm laughing because it's so true and I see it all the time. So I, lots of lessons to be learned for, by our colleagues by this conversation. That's that's a huge one for yeah, sure. Just listening to those parents. I was at a previous school and I did a couple of open houses and the first question in every single open house was the same. And I said, we need to incorporate this in our presentation. Yes. Everybody is asking this. Why yeah. are we not proactively addressing? It was literally the exact same question, three open houses in a row. And I'm like, we need to blow up the Prezi and rebuild this thing and actually tell them the things that they want to hear. Because <laughs> they were telling us loud and clear what they wanted to hear and we weren't telling them. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think it's it's a classic case, though, of there, there's a mind shift that we could definitely allow to happen in schools where it's not just about we're going to tell you all the great things about our school. You really do have to tell people what they want to hear. And that that means that sometimes you have to be quiet. Yes. Yes. And you, you need to take that that feedback and actually do something with it. Don't let it go into a vacuum. You know, make sure that you're actually paying attention and sharing it out because that's something that your head needs to know. That's something that your marketing office needs to know. It's something your fundraising. You know, everybody needs to know if there is a disconnect between what you're constantly putting out and what your families actually need to know. Absolutely. So our final question, and this is looking ahead to that occasionally blissful time, I guess, once the, once the contract <laughs> binding date has passed and you might feel like you can at least take a little bit of a break. Right. In your field of unicorns. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. You can roll in a field of unicorns, stare at the sun, all of all of that good stuff. What are some questions that, because I, I think that that's the perfect time for reflection and people don't always get to do that. Whether you're in marketing, you're in development, you're you know in admissions, it's really hard to find those moments to be still, reflect, and plan. So if you were given the gift of that opportunity, <laughs> what are some questions to ask or data points that admissions offices should consider as they're thinking about strategy for next year? I am a big believer of surveys, survey early and survey hard. <laughs> Love it. Our surveys will go out a week after our families have told us whether or not they're coming. We want to build on the momentum of the families who've enrolled. They're really excited. They have an opportunity to contribute. They want to connect. They want to be grateful. They will fill out the surveys. For many of the families who said no, they are still guilt-written. They feel bad <laughs> about their decision. 
They've told you how much they loved your school. They've enjoyed how much you've talked to them on the phone. They will also fill out the survey. Just one last opportunity for goodwill. So survey early and hard, that will get you the most data. And thinking about your surveys, these three, four page surveys, these are not helpful. You want, you want to get to the heart of the survey. You want to get to the heart of what you want to know from them. But more importantly, going back to the conversation we just had, you want to get to the heart of what they want to tell you yes. about what they loved or didn't love about your process, about your school, about your tour guides, about their interview, whatever the case is. So shorter surveys with many opportunities for families to give you open text replies because you're going to learn a lot of gold that you wouldn't have thought of because you never asked the right question. So yeah. giving them the voice to tell you the things that were important. To, you might ask them about your view book. You sent that view book last September. They don't even remember it, right? What is the value of the feedback on the view book? But they want to tell you about that yield event. Mm -hmm. They want to tell you about that thing that was like that one moment and that one event is what made us decide that we wanted to go to your school. But if you don't ask them that specific question, you won't get that answer. So shorter surveys that give people an opportunity to share with you what they're thinking versus having them reflect on what you want them to reflect on. Questions about, you know, for a, a good example, and I learned this from a, a colleague who's kind of a survey professional. One of the questions I ask families that choose not to enroll with us is what did they, what do they feel they gave up? What was something they loved about us that they're not going to have at their next school? Wow. Really powerful answers come from that and lovely, thoughtful answers come from that. And people will tell you like, this is the thing we wrestled with. This is the thing that would have made us go. It didn't, but we had a really hard time walking away from whatever it is, right? We love that you were an Episcopal school. We love that you had, you know, a robust Latin program, whatever it is. So I think for those families that got all the way through the process of the admission decision, there was something they valued about our school. Otherwise, they wouldn't have applied and completed their application. So learning from them and giving them the chance to reflect back to us versus forcing them to narrowly give us feedback based on very specific questions that we ask them to answer or to rank. Another thing we did recently, and I guess I'm going to have to owe you this one too, Angela, Greg Bamford from Leadership and Design Mm -hmm. had an exercise, I believe it was in one of his blog posts, or it was a podcast. If you can imagine four quadrants. So at the top of the quadrant is takes a lot of resources. And you have to think broadly about res resources. When we thought about it at my school, they might be political, right? Asking, yeah. calling in favors, trying to get faculty to do things for you, right? Like resources aren't just budget. Resources yes. are energy, effort, time, you wanted to do this thing. How many times did you email the same person until you finally got them to sign up for it? So you've got a, you've got a, a spectrum of, of resources, little to great resources. And then the cross axis is the return that you got on it. Was this a really successful event or not a successful event? And what we did is we, we took half an hour and everyone got a pile of post-it notes and we came up with everything that we do all year, anything you could think of. And we created a post-it note. And then we had this huge wall where we had put up our axes and everyone just started to put their post-it notes and the axes. And it, it became so clear. These are the high return, low resource things that we do every year. We need to double down on these things. Here are the things that are tremendously demanding of resources that we felt like did not give us much of a return. 
Mm -hmm. And those often fell into the, we've always done this, so we need to keep doing it category. Oh, yes. (laughs) Why do we have this coffee every year that hardly (laughs) anyone comes to? And that we have to ask the people who are doing the coffee 10 times to confirm the date that they'll do it. And we have to pay for the coffee. And we have to hold parking spaces for the coffee, which annoys everyone who works at school because (laughs) we took 20 parking spaces. Right. And then we get nothing out of it. So that was a really great strategic exercise for us to, to look and see what fell in those different quadrants and to really double down and be like, okay, these are low resource, high return on investment. This is where we want to start building our strategy going forward for next year. And then the last thing I would say, we spend a lot of time looking very carefully at what our advancement friends would call is moves management. So moves management is how you track a prospective donor through your solicitation process mm-hmm. and move them along and you see what things move them and what things don't move them to take the next step. So we did the same thing with all of our admissions activities and in particular, all of our yield activities. So I'll give you an example. We might do a webinar in the fall. That webinar is on Tuesday. On Monday, we do a snapshot of everyone who signed up for the webinar. Where are they right now in our process? Are they just an inquiry? Have they applied? Have they applied, but they haven't scheduled their interview? They've scheduled their interview, but they haven't completed their application, whatever the case is. Then we have the webinar. And then a week later, we look to see if that moved people. So did the inquiries become applicants? Did the applicants suddenly sign up for a tour after that? So we look at every single one of our major events and measure how successful was it in moving people through our process and getting them to take the next step towards enrollment. And for those things that didn't move people, then that's an opportunity just for either reinvent that, reinvent that event or get rid of that event. So a quick example, last year, we did a webinar during the yield time about finances, payment plans, 529 plans, you know, deposits, uh, you know, what you can expect for extra expenses, et cetera, et cetera. Within 30 minutes of that webinar, ending 16 people enrolled. And by the next morning, another four people enrolled. So within 12 hours, 20 people enrolled. Wow. About payment plans and if they could use their 529 funds and what our annual percentage increase in tuition is, it just gave them the information and the confidence they needed. So this year, we're actually running that twice. (laughs) That's incredible. What I love about that is that there's just so much data-driven action. Yes. An outcome from that process. And that's an area I think we can be really, really diligent about maintaining data around the pipeline, but we're not always great about looking back at all of the things <laughs> that go into an admission season and saying, okay, this is actually moving the needle and this isn't. We're great at adding things. Somebody's always got a new idea. Absolutely. Something always gets added to the list. But we're not great at taking things away. And if something is not actually helping the cause, right. then take it away. And that, I think that I think your comment is kind of a combination of the two things we do, right? We look at that high resource, high return on investment, and then we also look at the moves management, right? What does yes. it take for us to put on this 200-person open house, right? And how yeah. many of those people showed up at the open house for an inquiry and one week later were an applicant? Right. And if it didn't inspire and move them to become an applicant, then maybe we need to think about having boutique open houses. Right. We have one on robotics and STEM. We have one on, you know, languages. We have one in the science department or something instead of trying to have this big all school 
open house that was insufficient to move people through our process and was an incredible amount of effort and incredible amount of resources. Yeah. I mean, this there, there's so much good stuff in this discussion. And I'm thinking back on many moments where I can picture people laughing and nodding their heads. It's all just so relatable and, and such a great reflection of your experience in this space. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure that lots of people are going to want to get in touch with you. After listening to this episode, where can people find you online if they want to connect with you or learn more about the work that you're doing? Uh, they can go to the school website. It's three S's, S-S-S-A-S.org. And I'm right there in the admission contact information, or they're more than welcome to hop over to my LinkedIn and send me a message through there. And then we can connect from email from there. I'd be happy to talk to anybody and, and give whatever time and assistance I can. Our admissions decisions go out March 4th. So between now and March 4th, I might be a little slow in getting back to you, but I promise I'm here and I will absolutely get back to you at some point as fast as I can. <laughs> well, thank you again for your time. Wishing you the best of luck with, with the, the decisions that are going out in March. It's, it's February right now if you're listening to this uh, right after we drop the episode. So Andrew is excitedly awaiting all of the new families that are going to say yes to St. Stephen's and St. Agnes for next year. And and a happy Valentine's Day. This whole podcast was about the yield love, wasn't it? (laughs) It's all about feeling the love with yield. It's perfect. (laughs) Thanks, Angela. (laughs) Thank you. 